According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. As always, you may join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1. We're still in the prologue, which I'm fine for taking a month or two or three, however long it takes. We're actually approaching the end of it. Um, looking in verses 3 and 4 with respect to the glories of our Savior, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the point, <laughs> all right? Jesus is the point of everything. He's the point. He's the purpose. Everything God does is in Christ, through Christ, and for Jesus Christ. We want to be aware of this. He is uh, the, uh, all things are created through Him and for Him. It's the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ. And there's the uh, many principles there that we're going to see not only this morning, but they're going to move ahead into principles that we have to study related to the millennium and related to the fullness of time, the new heavens and the new earth after the millennium. So we want to be clear on this as well. God having spoken, spoke. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son. And so all of the speaking he ever did was to prepare the way for the keynote speaker, for the one and only, for the prime message that comes through Jesus Christ. One word that was withheld was the living word, as the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And the celebrity of the universe, God himself, becomes a man, enters into, uh, into his flesh, into his body, lives among us, and, and reveals the things of the Father. And that's the point being made here. Uh, spoke to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the ages, or the world. And He, being the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, the invisible God was demonstrated by the visible man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. The radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. The uh, role of Jesus Christ, not only to create all things, but to sustain all things. The power of God that made everything and holds it together. That's our God. Our God is permanent. Our God is eternal. And we can uh, trust him to hold all things together because that's what we see him doing, holding all things together. And uh, not only on the grand scale, like, you know, the galaxies and the universe and the planet, but on a personal scale, he's still holding all things together in my marriage, in my family, in my uh, church, and in my personal life, day by day and moment by moment. God's the one that's holding all things together so I can have my faith in him. We move on today to the idea of purification when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And so we have principles of inheritance that come back here in verse 4. We've already seen him as the heir. He's the appointed heir of all things in verse 2. Here specifically we find a name that he inherits and a name that is greater than the name the angels have inherited. And uh, that becomes then the foundation for all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2, which we'll get to here 
in a moment. All right, so God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking Him to set aside our distractions, to humble us under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? <coughs> Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, thankful for your faithfulness, thankful for your steadfastness, for uh, the role of your Son, and uh, the uh, faithfulness he exhibits in accomplishing all your good pleasure. Father, we come to you not on our own merit, not in our own worthiness, but in the name of Jesus Christ. And we present ourselves before you, workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Father, uh, I thank you for this time. I thank you that the word of God does not depend on how smart we are to figure these things out. The word of God depends on how faithful you are to open the eyes of our understanding and to lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. So Father, we, uh, we celebrate and rejoice in your infinite faithfulness this morning. Teach us, Father, what we need to learn. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we are breaking it down now into verses 3 and 4, we're really looking at the second half of verse 3, or 3b, in talking about purification. When he had made purification of sins, sins plural, when he had made purification of sins plural, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So there is a work of Jesus Christ in the purification of sins. And we want to understand this and relate it appropriately and not confuse it with other work of Jesus Christ on the cross or other work of Jesus Christ as it is connected to sin singular. All right, and so this is a, this is a verse where we're spotlighting sins plural as opposed to sin singular, and the difference is one of uh, of, of great importance related to uh, the position or the estate that we have in Adam. And so I would remind you of this from John chapter one and verse twenty nine, as we have the forerunner of the Christ who announces the Christ when he comes to be baptized, and he said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." who takes away. Notice the emphasis there is not on purifying. The emphasis there is on removal. All right? And, but in John, the, uh, when uh, John the Baptist is speaking, he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, singular, of the cosmos, the sin of the world. All right? And so that's a distinction and one that we pay attention to. And we understand that there are, um, that the Bible presents great differences between sin as a sphere, as a realm or an estate, and sins, plural, not only for what they do to us and as we commit our personal sins, but also how they defile places and things and, and circumstances in, uh, that require the purification. All right? And so all of these get, get broken down in different subcategories and different doctrines of homardiology, the doctrine of sin. So uh, let me read this so I don't misquote it, but uh, it's John 1, 29, and here's, the, here's all the Pharisees and all the crowd that's coming out to investigate John the Baptist, and they want to know who are you and why are you baptizing and what are you doing here and just who do you think you are <laughs> and all this stuff. And, uh, and he, he says, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. Um, and he gives them the answer. He says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. And he's the herald. He's the one announcing the arrival of, of the Christ. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. 
And so these things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Then this is John 1, now verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said. Okay? So everything I was talking about yesterday, this is the man. This is the one. All right? But he's called the, uh, the Lamb of God. Uh, he has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And of course, John understands all the doctrine we've been studying related to this in, in Hebrews 1. That uh, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, that He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. He's the creator of all things and He sustains all things. And then, on top of all that, He enters into His creation in the, in the humility of the virgin birth. In the uh, humility of His kenosis that we're looking at in, in our Philippian study. So, in any event, back to the, the singular versus the plural. The singular of sin. He takes away the sin of the world. And don't think of that as, a, as an individual personal sin, something that was committed by somebody. All right? Those are sins, plural. The, the, the things we do in carnality, what we do that falls short of the glory of God. So every, every personal sin we do, and, and we can all illustrate, with, we can stand up and testify to our last 20 sins. All right, I don't want to know, don't need to know. Okay, not my business. We all can illustrate with our personal sins. Okay, the Lamb of God took away the sin, singular, the sin of the world. And that's huge because when Adam sinned, God had an, a judicial uh, function against Adam and all of Adam, all of Adamic humanity. We are condemned in Adam. It's the wages of sin, singular, is death. Not the things we do, not the personal sins we commit that send us to hell. It's the wages of sin, that is Adam's original sin, that is the position of sin, that is state of, of being in Adam, those wages, spiritual death, all right? That's the, the consequence there. So we do this a lot. We do these, uh, uh, these studies between the singular and the plural. We, we understand distinctions between taking away versus uh, judging versus paying for versus cleansing. All of these are different activities that contain doctrine, and you have to understand each one of them for the full, complete, total study on, on uh, homardiology, the doctrine of sin. So here, back to this text then, we're focused here on the cleansing. And even with cleansing, there's distinctions to be found. And with cleansing, we understand that there's ceremonial cleansing, and then there's the reality. All right, And this is why we have an Old Testament, why Israel operated under the law with shadows, with the ceremony, with the ritual. All of that was designed as a tutor to lead us to Christ. All of the ceremonial cleansing was designed to communicate the reality of, of real cleansing. All right, and, and don't confuse the two. The biggest issue were the Pharisees that were such legalists because they, they kept insisting on the intrinsic value of the ceremonial cleansing when the, the ceremonial cleansing had no intrinsic value whatsoever beyond the doctrine that it taught pertaining to the reality of the cleansing. And if you miss that point, you, uh, you miss the point, all right? <laughs> I don't want us to do that. And so the reality is so much better. It is altogether wondrous. It is, it is, if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit teaching us these things, it would be beyond our human capacity to apprehend them. We are so finite. Even as saved, as saved creatures, we're still finite in our 
walk, in our existence. We're still temporal beings. We're still finite beings. We're still monopresent. We're still, uh, you know, we're still who we are, where we are. Creatures of time bound by time, and we're moving forward one day per day, you know, in that forward linear direction in the time stream. Uh, time stream. Uh, we're finite. We get to apprehend the infinite because the Holy Spirit indwells us, but even with that, there are still going to be things that are gonna, we're going to puzzle over, and we're going to we're going to wrestle like Trinity. How can the three be one? Uh, certain things that we're going to wrestle over. I think in some respects, the heavenly cleansing is something that we will puzzle over. How did the heavenly temple get defiled? And why did God tolerate a defiled heavenly temple in his presence? When scripture says he cannot abide iniquity in the solemn assembly and he cannot abide the presence of, of evil. Well, we got some clues and some things that, uh, that I think we want to look at here with respect to this. So let's look at, um, let's go back to Hebrews then, and let's look at uh, Hebrews 9. That's not good. That's twice it's done that to me now, isn't it? All right. We'll see what happens. Occasionally these uh, cables develop little shorts and we have to replace them. That's a $300 thing, but hey, it's better than popping your ears every time I preach. Hebrews chapter 9. Um, a couple of things we want to see in this. There's a reference in verse 14, and then further down there's another reference uh, with respect to cleansing, with respect to the blood of Christ and what was accomplished here on the cross. I understand so much was accomplished on the cross, and I think um, a sloppy approach just kind of lumps it all together into one thing. And it tends to be selfish, it tends to be focused. Um, what was Jesus doing on the cross? Well, he was buying my eternal life, okay? He was, uh, he was paying for my sins. Uh, he, was, um, he was purchasing my redemption. I can go to heaven now when I die because of what Jesus did on the cross, all right? And, and I, I won't argue with any of that. All that's true. But that's only a partial story. Okay? There's much more that was accomplished. And there were things that were done on the cross that were, that were oriented towards the angelic realm. And we don't understand all of it, but we can see it plainly in Colossians chapter 1 and we accept it for what it says. There were also things that he did on the cross that applied to the heavenly temple. Again, we don't totally understand it, but we can read it for what it is and we can accept it for what it says. There was also work that he did on the cross that pertains to Israel in the future millennial kingdom. He told the disciples that in the upper room. He says, this, is, uh, this cup is the blood of my covenant. And it's the covenant with Israel that's going to be made in the millennial kingdom, the new covenant of Jeremiah 31, 31. And that is something different than what he was doing in purchasing our redemption and providing our eternal life. So all of these things that he's doing, at least four things, maybe five things that he was doing on the cross. And understanding what each one of them was, because they were all happening there on that cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. So here we have a clue in Hebrews chapter 9. <coughs> and uh, we recognize that the, the, the current tabernacle, the earthly replica, is simply a foreshadowing. And, uh, and that those things are teaching doctrine and preparing for something greater that is yet to come. And so you can see this um, in verses 1 through 5, talking about the first covenant and all the regulations the tabernacle, the outer court, the inner court, lampstand, table of showbread, uh, the holy of holies, the golden altar, and all of that. 
There's a reason why you want to study Leviticus. There is a reason why you want to understand your Old Testament. Above it were the cherubim overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. All right, like every other Bible teacher, you run out of time and you've got to get to what you're getting to. And uh, verse 6 talks about when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tab- tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Now notice, this is, these are redeemed people, but these are redeemed people engaged in a priestly service. That becomes important. The cleansing is for their priestly service, not for whether they're saved or not. They're already, from the point of their being born, they're already Levites. They're already priests just by virtue of being born. Keep that in mind. Um, you'll do much better with your uh, cleansing verses and your uh, judgment verses and the warning passages in Hebrews when you realize it has nothing to do with being born. It has everything to do with your suitability for priestly service. All right. And so uh, these priests in verse 6 are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year. One guy, one day a year. So how special is that? Okay, And how excluded is everybody else except for that one guy, one day a year? And uh, not without taking blood. There's sacrifices first before he can go in there which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And so he's got some preparatory sacrifices for his own sake. Jesus didn't need any sacrifices for his own sake, but he did need preparation. He had to be prepared and suited to do that work. All right. And then for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. That a great obstacle to understanding the church age reality is the, uh, the lingering uh, shadows that are still being uh, practiced by the, the, uh, the, the Jews in Jerusalem. All right? So don't confuse the ritual with the reality. Notice verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. That is the first century, the introduction of the church, that it should now be obsolete, growing old, ready to disappear. A symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to uh, to food and drink and various washing regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Mosaic law was never designed to be eternal. It had a planned obsolescence from the day it was first given. And it was given at Sinai, and it was given for the time being, and it was given as a shadow, as a picture. It was given as a tutor to lead the Jewish people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now that that's been accomplished, Christ being the end of the law for all who believe, we ought to take the next step now and enter into the reality. We ought to enter into the body of Christ and function in our Melchizedek priesthood and our spiritual priesthood in Christ. And uh, that's the whole point to the book of Hebrews, and it's going to transform uh, each one of us by the time we're done with this. All right. And uh, so, what are we still looking at here? And by the way, this is a clue. The language of this that, that indicates that the book of Hebrews was written before 70 AD, really before 66 AD, because by then 
you know, they were surrounded by Roman armies and they had to stop the, the normal temple operations. Uh, they were starving to death uh, under siege and they, they stopped the temple operations at a certain point. You, you quit putting all those sheep on the altar when, you, when you're starving to death, okay? And uh, things like that. But when Christ appeared, Hebrews 9.11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, now, when Christ appeared, we'll deal with this in greater length. This is not when he was born of a virgin. This is not when he appeared in Bethlehem. This is not when he appeared to start his earthly ministry. This is actually when he appeared after his resurrection and ascension. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. All right, see, now this is the parallelism here. This is his appearance before the Father. And just as the high priest couldn't go into the Holy of Holies without first offering sacrifices for himself and then for the sins of the people, so Jesus Christ could not appear before the Father as a high priest of the good things to come without being victorious at Calvary. So now he's ready to appear before the Father. And he's not bringing the blood of goats and calves and bulls. He's coming before the Father with the finished work of Calvary. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Remember that idiom, that language of without hands, made without hands? We have uh, this body is a tent that's being torn down. We have a resurrection body waiting for us, made without hands. He entered into the greater and more perfect tabernacle. The one Moses built was simply a, a, a model, a scale model based on the prototype, based on the blueprints of the heavenly reality. Jesus entered into the heavenly reality. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. All right, And we recognize this by analogy, the spiritual death of Christ on the cross, the work that He accomplished to please the Father at Calvary. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. The high priest can't do anything once and for all. The high priest, even if he does everything perfectly, has to do it again next year, okay? Has to do it again the year after that. Has to do it again the year after that. Every single year, here we go again, okay? And it coincides. You've got the, the Yom Kippur, you've got the, 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 the uh, it follows in the fall. You've got the, the new year followed by the Day of Atonement. Okay, every year, here we go again, here we go again. And year after year, there's a constant reminder of sin. Not so with Jesus Christ. Once and for all, Jesus Christ appeared before the Father. He stood there and appeared having done the work. And then with more work to do. Verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have defiled, who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. So understand what's happening here with the Levitical sacrifices in the Old Testament. What was the value of killing a, a, a sheep for your own cleansing? How does that make you clean? What's the value there? Well, it's ceremonial. And it's, it's a ceremonial cleansing that puts the Levites and the priests and the high priest in a ceremonial position of, of cleanliness. To be ceremonially cleansed, ceremonially pure so that they can operate before the Father's throne without being judged for their uncleanness. 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Again, this is our priesthood. Not about being born. It's about our priesthood and how we serve in the presence of the Father. And how are we washed? How are we cleansed? How are we not just ceremonially cleansed, but literally, spiritually, eternally cleansed to operate in the heavenly places? Not some kind of a replica. Not an earthly replica. I love the fact that when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the earthly replica was rent in two, exposing its emptiness to the whole world, and he never bothered going in there. He had no business going in there. Okay? He exposed it for the emptiness of what it was, and then he ascended to heaven and cleansed the heavenly realities. So, um, that's what we're dealing with here. Now, that's verse 14, and you'll notice it's a cleansing, and it's a cleansing of our conscience. Notice, from dead works to serve the living God. It has nothing to do with, you know, a Saturday morning in 1973 when your mother sat you down and gave you the gospel, okay? It has nothing to do with identifying that, that you don't have eternal life and you need a Savior so that you can go to heaven when you die. But it has everything to do with the experiential sanctification of a believer, somebody who's already been born into the family of God, that desires on this day to engage in his priesthood. And on this day, day after day, as long as it's called a day, I want to operate as a believer priest in the church age. That's going to require a cleansing. Okay? I don't have to get saved all over again, but I do have to be cleansed. And that's where the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing. And so this is what we're dealing with here. And we're being cleansed. It's a cleansing of conscience from dead works. The attitudinal adjustment that that recognizes everything I do in the flesh is dead, unacceptable to God. Wood, hand, stubble, I want none of it. God wants none of it. I want to serve the living God by a new and living way. I want to offer not a dead sacrifice, but a living sacrifice before my living Savior. So my conscience has to be cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. Now I'm going to skip down through 15 through... um, 22, although you'll notice that these things do get cleansed. Um, Verse 18 says, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. When every commandment had been spoken by Moses and all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Go back and read that in Exodus and get that story. But as he sprinkled it, what did he do? What did Moses say? He's sprinkling the book, he's sprinkling the people, and he says, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Moses made a statement that very much was echoed by Jesus in the upper room on the night in which he was betrayed. When he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the covenant. Okay, The shadows he was fulfilling there was from Moses to Jesus, not pertaining to the church, but pertaining to Israel and the new covenant. We'll say some more about that today in communion. All right. So verse 21, in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. That's the earthly replica, the showbread, the table of showbread, the candlestick, the altar, the ark, all of that. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, the, the realm of worship is not suitable. 
And so therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Because the heavenly temple must be cleansed. The heavenly temple must also be sanctified and be prepared for the heavenly people that are going to be serving there. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. What was the value for Israel when they prayed towards their earthly temple? What's the value for us who operate continuously in the heavenly temple, in the holy of holies? And not just one guy one day a year, all of us every day. All of us all day every day in the holy of holies. So, uh, verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Jesus isn't doing that. Once and for all, he accomplished the eternal redemption. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin, sin singular, put away by the sacrifice of himself. All right, so we got these concepts, putting away sin, taking away sin, but purifying, cleansing for the sins, plural. So Christ also, inasmuch as it has been appointed for men to die once, after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Okay, and there we have it. What a blessing. What powerful doctrine comes right here in this chapter? And this is, uh, this is what we're dealing with here. All right, so back to chapter 1 then. He took his seat. He cleansed. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And it was the Father's good pleasure to seat him there. The Father invited him to take his seat there in the process of that. He was seated having been invited, having been demonstrated to be worthy. He was seated as a king priest waiting for his next appearance on the earth. Seated as a king priest waiting for his next appearance on the earth. What's he been doing for the last 2,000 years? (laughs) Is he just sitting there doing nothing? Got his feet propped up? Okay. Looking like Pastor Bob on a Sunday afternoon? Okay. Can't wait for football season to start up again. There's nothing better than to uh, get home from church, put on a football game, prop your feet up, and nap for the whole afternoon. (laughs) Wake up every few minutes, see the score, and go back to your nap. (coughs) No, Jesus is not asleep on duty. He's very active. He is the apostle and high priest of our confession. And yes, as far as the king role, he is seated at the Father's hand and he is not yet seated on the throne of David in Jerusalem. All right. But as far as his priestly role is concerned, he walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. He holds the stars in his right hand. He is actively involved as the head of the church. He is not an absentee landlord. He is actively involved as the head of the church. We want to be clear on that as well. So um, many things come up here in this. This is a theme we're going to see repeated here in the book of Hebrews, and it comes from the Old Testament. But you'll notice 
He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Why did he sit down there? Was he right to sit down there? Was he invited to sit down there? Was he presumptuous to sit down there? Was there somebody else that wanted to sit down there first? Yes, there was. In fact, the whole point of the angelic conflict centers on the fact that uh, Halel ben Shachar was dissatisfied with his sitting assignment. And uh, when you read through the five I wills and you read through Isaiah 14, you realize this whole rebellion comes down to Satan lusting after a seat that Jesus was entitled to. Verse 13 of this chapter, um, <coughs> to which of the angels has he ever said? This is more than just a rhetorical question. It is rhetorical, but it's also specific. It's also a direct rebuke against Satan. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? The easy answer is none of them. The more specific answer is, especially you, Satan, okay? The one who lusted after it, the one who said, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will take my seat on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. That's the right hand of God, okay? None of the angels are entitled to that seat. And even the greatest of the created angels is not worthy of that seat. The, the least of humanity is greater than the greatest of angelity. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service? And so he is invited to sit and he is worthy to sit. I love uh, Hebrews 8.1. Hebrews 8.1. <laughs> and in case... Chapters 1 through 7 is too deep and you got lost somewhere along the way. Uh, the author of Hebrews just kind of boils it all down for us here in Hebrews 8.1. He says, now the main point in what has been said is this. <laughs> Isn't that great? <clears throat> we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's the main point. So we're introducing it this morning in verse 3, in verse 4. But it really is the main point in chapters 1 through 7. And he summarizes it here in 8 1, and it leads to everything that follows. Really, 8, 9, 10, these chapters that center on our priesthood in Christ. We've got the Hall of Fame of Faith and the Faith Applications in 11 and 12, and then more priesthood in chapter 13. <coughs> we have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary, in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And uh, goes on to describe why he's unique for that and qualified for that and how um, the, uh, the, the Levitical priesthood here on earth just serves the copy and the shadow in, uh, in verse 5. <coughs> Chapter 10 and verse 12, Hebrews 10, 12. By this will we have been sanctified. By this will. <coughs> uh, verse 9, behold, I, come to do, I have come to do your will. Jesus Christ came to this earth to do the will of the Father. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, not only to live among us, not only to identify with us, but to accomplish what none of us could do to do the will of God on the cross, to take that finished work to heaven, to cleanse the heavenly temple in heaven, and to take his seat at the right hand of God. 
Behold, I have come to do your will. And so he takes away the first in order to establish the second. So the shadows are done when Christ fulfills everything. And by this will, the Father's will that the Son accomplished, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is, this is the whole point. This is what it gets made again and again and again and again. I don't mind repeating it 50 times because the text repeats it a whole bunch of times. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Why does he keep emphasizing sat down, sat down, sat down, sat down? What's the point of being seated? Is it relaxation? It's, it's session. It's new duty. It's new assignment. It's like when a judge is seated, when a court is in session. All right. Uh, chapter 12 and verse 2. <clears throat> verse 1 says, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, not the sins, but the sin, which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, see there's the prototype, he's the example, he wasn't looking at himself when he went to the cross, if you're looking at yourself, give it up, you won't run with endurance the race that's set before you because you're just looking at yourself. We should be having our eyes fixed on Jesus. He had his eyes fixed on the joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're going to stress this a lot. It gets spoken of in Psalms, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. There's a lot of doctrine with respect to being seated and where you're being seated. And the disciples, they they got hung up on this. They were trying to, they were jockeying for a seating position in the millennial kingdom. We want to sit on your right and on your left. And Jesus said, hey, I don't assign seats. It's the Father that assigns the seating. It's the Father's good pleasure. And if you're trying to, you're trying to bargain for a seat you think you're entitled to, that's satanic. Jesus said he wanted no part of that. Okay? But what's our seating assignment? Even as the Son is seated at the right hand of the Father, Ephesians says we're seated at the right hand of Christ. We are in Christ. We are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. That's why this doctrine of session is so uh, special. I think it's, it's a beautiful thing. We are in session right now. We're not waiting for the trumpet for that. It's already going on right now. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right. And so in 12.2, sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's our application there. So see, uh, Jesus Christ was seated, invited, and worthy, seated as a king priest waiting for his next appearance on the earth. Waiting for his next appearance on the earth. We've already said when he, when he again brings the firstborn in the world, or we've already read how when he appears a second time, it will be without reference to sin. He dealt with that in his first advent. He's not going to come with reference to sin in his second advent. Seated as a king priest waiting for his next appearance on 
the earth. So let's look at Psalm 110. This, um, this is not mystery doctrine. This was not uh, withheld until the Apostle Paul could record it in Ephesians or Colossians or somewhere in the New Testament. This is Old Testament. This was given to Israel. These are Hebrew scriptures in the Hebrew canon. And scriptures of a sort that should have, a, should have raised monster red flags, should have been the subject of tremendous uh, uh, excitement pertaining to Jesus in his first advent instead of uh, rejection and resentment and, and uh, the hostility that our Savior encountered. Uh, Psalm 110, we know what was special to Jesus. He used it a lot in his uh, teaching and in his combat with uh, the Pharisees. But the Lord said to my Lord, now here's uh, a Davidic psalm, and we want to keep our Lord straight, um, but David is writing this. The Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Christ, is he the son of David or is he David's Lord? Why, uh, why is the son of David called David's Lord? That's what Jesus was throwing to the Pharisees and they had no answer for him. But there is the Lord and my Lord. We've got the Father and the Son. And this, is, uh, this should be clear even from an Old Testament perspective. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Why does he have enemies? <laughs> because the Lord has enemies. And if they hate the Father, they're going to hate the Son. Just like if they hate the Son, they're going to hate us. Okay, And so the enemies, the adversary, and the third of all the angels that followed him, they hate the Father, and they hate the Son. And so the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. The millennial kingdom requires a scepter, requires a rod of iron, and he will be ruling in the midst of his enemies. There will still be unbelievers throughout the millennial kingdom. It won't start with unbelievers, but there will be unbelievers throughout the millennium, starting with the first generation of unbelievers that are born, on through a thousand years of rebels against the, the throne of Jesus Christ. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn, well, let's see, verse 3, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Wow, there's some fun prophecies. But, but this is taking a lot of Old Testament principles from Genesis, from other passages, putting them forward into a millennial application where the Jews, by the way, stay faithful. All the Gentiles rebel. <coughs> Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You know, God can't lie. And so he swears, he takes a, a vow, he takes an oath. How much more binding is that when he's the God who cannot lie, won't change his mind? You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hmm, wait a minute. <laughs> That's new. That's different. How can the king be a priest? Because see, in the shadows and the types in the Old Testament, the king was from Judah. The priests were from Levi. Totally different tribes. That's like a, you know, a bride from Texas and a groom from Washington. How does that work? Okay. So you got a king from Judah and a priest from Levi, and that's the way it has to be until the uh, son, 
that is David's Lord, who was promised from his Lord, to be seated at the Father's right hand and to be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And there's a lot to talk about with that. There's a lot of doctrine that goes with that. And the author of Hebrews really wanted to teach his, his audience about that. They just weren't ready for it. They were hard of hearing. And they were dull of hearing. And uh, they weren't ready for the Melchizedek doctrine. But there it is. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. That's it. Six, seven verses here from Psalm 110. It's messianic. It's millennial. It centers on a king priest. All right. And it centers on the king priest of the father's good pleasure, not the adversary, not Satan. Satan was a different kind of king priest. Satan was a king priest that was faithless in his duties. He, uh, he glorified himself with his treasures. He lifted up himself because of his beauty. He, uh, he became prideful, he became arrogant, became rebellious, and then he became dissatisfied because his throne was too low. And he wanted to be seated on a throne that he felt he was entitled to, but it wasn't for him. To which of the angels did he say, sit in my right hand? All right, so that's Psalm 110. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 6. Zechariah chapter 6. This is at the end of the Old Testament. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 6. Who pays attention to Zechariah? Jesus did. I tell you, Jesus did. I did it again. Didn't I? Try that. Give myself a little more slack. All right. Zechariah chapter 6. And if his disciples had paid attention to Zechariah, they wouldn't have argued with Jesus so much because they kept, uh, they kept declaring that they were going to stick with him and he kept saying, no, Zechariah is going to get fulfilled. You're going to be scattered and I have to go to the cross alone. And they kept saying, no, 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 no. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and it's just crazy that they're going to try to defy the Scriptures when Jesus came to fulfill the Scriptures. Anyway, and in the process of this, in Zechariah 6.13, there's a a message here. Uh, Verse 11, Take uh, silver and gold, make an ornate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Remember when they came back from their captivity, Lewis is teaching you this in his post-captivity studies. When they came back from their captivity, they had uh, Zerubbabel from the line of David was their their political ruler and Joshua was their spiritual ruler. And Joshua was the high priest, the son of Jehozadak. And they uh, then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch, for he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Now this is Jesus. He's the root of David. He's the branch. And this is one of his titles and the doctrine that relates to him. Did he build a temple in first advent? He did no such thing. Okay, But this is second advent. This is what he's going to do. And Ezekiel gives us all the schematics and all the details. 
But it says in verse 13, Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. We won't again have that tension between the, the priesthood and the, and the kingship. All right? And so there will be a unity of king-priest in the person of Jesus Christ, and not until, not until. This, this is what makes the, the Maccabee thing so blasphemous. If you ever know anything about Judas Maccabeus and that whole intertestamental period, they took a bunch of priests and they put them on a throne. And they fought a war for independence. They probably had a 4th of July with fireworks and hot dogs. And they, uh, they, did, uh, they, they fought a war for independence against Antiochus Epiphanes and the, and the wicked Greeks up there in, in uh, Syria and Seleucia. And they, they won. They won their freedom. They won their independence. Or they think they Well, yeah, they did. I won't, I won't diminish what they did. They accomplished a true freedom, at least until Pompey came along and the Romans squashed them. But for a season, they were free. And for a season, they had a priestly family sitting on a throne. And they thought, ooh, isn't this a great thing? Hooray for us. And a bunch of Bible students got together and said, no, not hooray for us. This is wrong. This is, this is wrong. That We cannot unite the throne with the priesthood until Messiah. Messiah will unite the throne with the priesthood, not us. And the, these faithful Bible students came along and they were... They were right. They were right on target. And they were solid men. They were uh, scholars. You and I would, would have a lot of fellowship with them had we been alive in that day and age. All right? I'm discussing for you here the birth of the Pharisees. This is the origin of the Pharisee party. And it's sad what they turn into by the first century and in Jesus' lifetime, the Pharisees are a wreck. But their origin in the, in the third century B.C., the origin of those Pharisees, and how they rose and how they, 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 they gleaned the allegiance of the people because they were the best Bible teachers out there. They were solid teachers. And they knew that the priests had no business sitting on a throne, ruling as a king, not until Messiah. And so isn't it ironic then that when Messiah does arrive in the first advent, who are the biggest obstacles? The Pharisees. Isn't that sad? Tragic. And so uh, there he is. Now, uh, waiting for his next appearance on the earth. Now, we get to verse 4, and uh, he's going to inherit a better name. He's going to become much better than the angels. How does this happen? Hasn't he always been better than the angels? From eternity past, didn't he create the angels? How can he become better than something he created? Well, because for the moment, he lowered himself, and that's the point. And so we pay attention to the I am verbs, and we pay attention to the becoming verbs, and we paint the total tapestry for what the Scripture describes. Because remember, the eternal I am, Son of God, became flesh. And in becoming flesh, in so doing, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Part of the the condescension of Jesus Christ and the kenosis, how he emptied himself, how he laid aside his privileges, how he was made in the form of a bondservant. He came in the form of man. All right? So the eternal I am, Son of God, became flesh. That's John 1, verse 1 and 2, verse 14. We read it last week. The Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. In so doing, he was made for a little while lower than the angels. Psalm 8, verses 5 and verse 6. Again, it's the Psalms. It's not mystery doctrine. It's not uh, hidden until Paul wrote about it in Ephesians. This is, uh, this is Old Testament. This is Hebrew canon. This is scripture they should have identified with. Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6. Verse 3 says, um, and let's see, do I read the whole thing? It's nine verses long. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and revengeful cease. Ah, what's this about? Isn't this a beautiful thing? From the mouth of infants. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? We talked about this in Proverbs 8. Jesus Christ creates the whole universe and yet he takes his delight in the sons of men. Why is that? It's amazing. Why do kids get fascinated in the things they get fascinated in? <laughs> You know, they got all these toys, they got all these things, they got all this stuff, and they're over here playing with a cardboard box. Like, what is that? When I was a kid, I played with a spoon. A spoon was one of the greatest toys in the world. You know, I mean, you have a, it's like a little person, right? You got a head for the circle part and a body for the stick part, and who needs, <clears throat> who needs action figures when you got a drawer full of spoons? And they just raid your mom's kitchen. And so, okay, yeah, now kids are dumb. Kids, kids do silly things. But Jesus, when he created the universe, it says in Proverbs 8, he took his delight in the sons of man. It wasn't the angels that delighted Jesus. It was humanity that delighted Jesus because he's already the God-man as he's creating the universe. And so in this, then, we see what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than, it should be the angels, ha Elohim, not God singular, but Elohim plural, that is the angels, and it gets quoted in Hebrews that way. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You have made him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, including, by the way, the angels. The angels get put under his feet. The rulers and authorities get put under his feet. All sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so we have Psalm 8 here with reference to this. It gets quoted in Hebrews 2. What is man? What is the son of man? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. So Hebrews validates our exegesis from the Elohim language of, of Psalm 8. Now in his resurrection, in the body of his glory, Jesus Christ has become higher than any angel. And again, it's a became. It's a became verb. It's ginomai. It's to become. It is to become something you were not before. When the word became flesh, it's the first time that the God-man has been in a human body. It's the first time for him to become flesh. When he became lower than the angels, it's the first time he became lower than the angels. When he became higher than the angels, again, it's a process. It's, this, it's that becoming that was bestowed upon him because of his faithfulness in his humanity. 
That's important as well. In his resurrection, in the body of his glory, Philippians 3.21, Jesus Christ has become higher than any angel. That's Hebrews 1.4, that's Philippians 2.5-11. through 11. I'm running out of time. In fact, now I'm just stalling for time. When Molly comes in, we'll have uh, our, our final hymn and our communion. But uh, let's, uh, let's go to Philippians. What a, what a delight to teach Hebrews and teach Philippians in tandem. I think some genius might have planned for that. Okay, Not me, of course. I just stumbled into it. But we've got a Philippians series going on right now, first hour and Wednesday night. We've got a Hebrews study going on right now, and what a, what a beautiful tandem. All right? Got to wrap it up. But Philippians 3.21 talks about the body of His glory. And that's the body we're going to be transformed into. Transforming the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. But chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And we see how He emptied Himself, He humbled Himself, He became a man, but then for this reason. Verse 8, He humbled Himself. Am I going too fast? Are you with me still? Philippians 2, 8, death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, okay? Without the death on the cross, he doesn't get the for this reason also, God highly exalted him. To inherit that name that's greater than the angels, he has to have the, the, the greatest humility of any human ever. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name including the angels, so that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, those who are under the earth, on the earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Satan wanted the great name, Satan wanted the chair, but he wouldn't humble himself. Jesus humbled himself. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for this truth. So much deep doctrine and And Father, we're just scratching it, but I thank you that we can study to show ourselves approved. I pray that we would be imitators of Christ, not imitators of Satan, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. You will exalt us in the proper time. And Father, I thank you for the example of our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. All right. As the students come in for